God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text today is taken from the parable we heard in the Gospel of Luke. You may be seated. We begin with the word of prayer. Almighty Father, your love to us is beyond our understanding. Lord, you are full of grace and mercy towards sinners such as us. And yet you have gathered us here now so that we would hear your forgiveness, we would receive your gifts, and we would trust you more. Lord, we pray that as we hear your word, our faith would be strengthened. So grant us your Holy Spirit so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I love uh, when studying Jesus' parables is the way he delivers these stories that are really kind of absurd. And, and when Jesus uses absurd illustrations in these parables, how he uses the absurd to help us understand a spiritual reality, which is actually going to be quite beautiful. For example, remember the parable of the man, the, the, the sower and the seeds? You remember this parable, the, the farmer who goes out to sow his seed in the ground, and what does he do? He takes handfuls and he just starts flinging it everywhere. He's throwing it all over the place. So the seed is getting all over the place on every kind of soil and every kind of ground. Now, if you're a farmer and you hear that parable, you think to yourself, that farmer is nuts. That's not how you do this. That's just a waste of all kinds of seed. But you've got to remember, in the world of the parable, we're not receiving instructions on the wisest way to plant seed, but rather Jesus is using that absurd illustration to help us understand a spiritual reality. And what's the reality in the parable? That Christ wants his word proclaimed everywhere, without exception. That he wants his word proclaimed to every people in every place that you can possibly take his word that nothing should be held back when it comes to the preaching of the gospel. And to be sure, there will be those who believe and there will be those who don't. But nonetheless, nothing should stop you from preaching that word. That's part of the point of that parable. We see this, this strange picture to help us understand a beautiful reality. Now, I tell you that today because we're going to hear a parable that I, as I studied it this week, the more I looked at it, the more I thought, boy, every single person in this parable is absurd. Everyone in the parable is acting in a way that just seems bizarre and strange and odd to us. So what I want us to make sure that today when you read this parable, or really when you read any parable, the stranger something sounds to you, that's a point at which you need to stop and think, all right, this is what I need to pay attention to. What is Jesus trying to teach me with this parable? So in this parable today, let's look at the absurd, the parable of the absurd tenants, these wicked tenants. Now, let's set the stage just so you understand kind of what's going on. Jesus, the, this parable takes place uh, in Jesus' teaching during Holy Week. So it's after Palm Sunday when he preaches this parable in Luke's Gospel. It's before Palm Sunday in our church, because Palm Sunday is next week. But in the book of the Bible, it's, it's, the, week, it's the week of Holy Week. It's the week after Palm Sunday. So Jesus is there in the temple, and he's preaching the gospel. He's telling the good news of, of God's reign among the people, and, and the people are listening. But he's come up against opposition. The religious leaders are opposed to Jesus here, and they begin questioning his authority. So in response to their questioning of his authority, Jesus tells this parable to expose the failure of their authority. Here's how the parable begins. Jesus says, A man planted a vineyard, 
and let it out to tenants, and then went into another country for a long while. Now, this is not absurd. In fact, everything at this point is all pretty standard. In the ancient world, it was, in fact, standard practice uh, for a landowner, maybe a vineyard owner, uh, to, to sort of lease out his property to tenants. And there was a contract between the two of them. He would say, I will let you live here, I will let you work here, you can eat and receive uh, food and lodging and all that kind of stuff here on my property, all the benefits of my property, and in exchange for this, I expect you to grow the crop and to produce fruit for me. Pretty standard practice, but it makes a lot of sense. Further, it's also worth noting that in the Old Testament, Israel very often is depicted as a vineyard, so that you can think of the promised land as sort of this vineyard that God owns, and he leases it out to tenants, that is, the Israelites. So this is pretty common standard practice uh, for telling stories about Israel. You set this stage with uh, a vineyard and people working in the vineyard. Now, these tenants, specifically today, represent the religious leaders. The tenants of the vineyard represent those who have been given authority by God to preach his word and teach uh, the people. They have the responsibility of, of preaching uh, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, of pointing people to their merciful God and preparing people for the Messiah. That's their job. That's the authority they've been given. And so, that's where we are in the parable. So far, so good. Everything makes sense, but not for long. Jesus goes on. Now, when the time came, he, that is the master, sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Think about that. That is absurd. A master makes a contract with vineyard workers to produce fruit on the vines and then sends his servants to collect on the agreement only to have the servants beaten and abused and cast out and given no fruit? How strange. This would be like, this would be like you hiring a plumber to come to your house and you tell him to fix the faucet and then you go to the grocery store and you come back to find the plumber you know, sitting on your couch, eating your food, drinking water from the faucet, and you say to the guy, hey, did you, did you fix the faucet? And he takes the remote control and throws it at your nose and then beats you up and casts you out of your own house and locks the door. That seems odd. That's not something you expect the plumber to do. This is strange. That's what's going on here in the parable. Because that whole scene, it's not just strange or absurd. It's evil. It's evil. And that's what Jesus wants the religious leaders to hear. Because this parable is actually describing the reality of the way in which the religious leaders were treating God and his word and how they have always treated God and his prophets. Remember, as I mentioned at the beginning, God gave Israel the promised land as a gift. But then we read that when he gave it to them, this is, this is kind of the way God worked with Israel in the Old Testament. He said, you are my chosen people, and from you I am going to promise to bring forth the Messiah. And so I'm going to give you this land to dwell in so you have a place to be. That was all a gift. But then their dwelling in the land, he put a condition on. We call this the law. He said, if you do well in the land, if you work hard, 
if you worship me and you don't worship other gods, if you love one another and don't act unjustly and begin to abuse and mistreat each other, if you do all this, life will go well for you in the land. But if you begin to worship false gods, if you begin to abuse the poor and take advantage of each other, if you become sinful and evil in this land, I will cast you out and I will punish you. So as you study the history of Israel throughout the Old Testament, you see Israelites, they don't do so hot in the land. They sin a lot against God. So how does God handle it? He sends prophets. He sends prophets to the Israelites to announce to them that if they do not repent, God is going to call down these covenant curses upon them. So now turn back to God, receive mercy, forgiveness, and grace, and turn away from your sins. And how do the Israelite leaders respond to such things? They abuse the prophets. Let's go through a list of a few here. The prophet Isaiah, maybe the greatest of all the writing prophets. Tradition says they sawed him in half. You can read the book of Jeremiah and see all the different ways Jeremiah suffered, how he was beaten and abused, cast into uh, a well for a while. I mean, and that guy suffered a great deal. You read about the prophet Zechariah, who was killed in the temple courts. And on and on the list goes all the way up to John the Baptist who, as you and I know, was beheaded for preaching the word of God. God's word, or excuse me, God's messengers came to give repentance, and to give forgiveness to the people, only to be rejected and shamed, treated with wickedness. And that all, you know, this is also sort of strange. Why would they act that? After God's been so good to them, after God's been so kind and merciful to them, how could they sin against him in so many strange ways. But you know, this is the problem for all of us, isn't it? I mean, certainly it was a problem for Israel in the Old Testament, but you know, it, we as Christians, even at times, need to stop and take a good, long, hard look in the mirror and ask ourselves the question, why do we treat God's word in a similar way? Maybe we don't uh, abuse and kill his preachers yet, uh, but maybe we do recognize that in our own lives, every time we sin, it is equally as absurd. But we know how much God loves us. We know how much God has given us in Christ Jesus, and yet we still find ourselves sinning against God in thought, in word, and in deed. And it's baffling. We don't, know, we don't even know sometimes why we do it. St. Paul himself, one of the apostles, he wrestled with this. He writes about his Christian walk in, really specifically in the book of Romans, chapter 7. And there Paul starts to describe the nature, the sort of absurd nature of sin in his own life, and he's not really sure how it even happens. This is what he says. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And he continues on that way for quite a while, actually. But he's like, I mean, this is absurd. I know God loves me. I know of the forgiveness of my sins. And I know that God wants me to live in a particular way. And I love God's word. I love his gospel. I love his law. I love the idea of being able to love and serve people in a perfect way. But then I think thoughts about them that aren't so loving. Then I say words behind their back that aren't so kind. Then I do things to benefit myself and to harm them. Why? I don't know. Crazy. Think of the absurdity of sin. Think of our first parents, Adam and Eve, 
Why would they receive a perfect garden and a perfect life from a perfectly loving God and then wish to listen to anyone else, even like a serpent? That doesn't make any sense. It's absurd. Why do you take from those who don't belong, take things that don't belong to you? Why do you dehumanize other people and turn them into objects of your lust? Why do you harm others for personal gain? Why do you slander others to make yourself look better, only to make yourself look worse? Why do you do these things? I don't know. The reality of sin is inexplicable. It's absurd. The evil we find even inside of ourselves is bizarre and absurd. So we have to recognize that. Before we start pointing fingers at these religious leaders for the crazy way they've acted, we see such sin at work even in our own. So let's get back to the parable and see what the master does about this. And, and what we begin to find now is that things begin to get even more strange at this point. This is what Jesus says. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Stop right there. This is the most absurd move in the whole thing. At what point was the master like, you know, they keep beating everybody I send to them. I know. Let's give them my son. They'll like that guy. He's great. That's a kind of a strange move. Is this thing really going to turn out differently? I mean, you can kind of predict what happens next. When the tenants saw him, that is the son, they said to themselves, oh, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Now, in order to sort of explain this away, I've heard some commentators say, this may sound strange, but really in the ancient world, what would happen is if you had an, a landowner and he didn't have an heir, uh, the people who worked the land, they would receive the inheritance when that landowner died. And that makes good sense, you know, Unless you murder the heir, the landowner's not going to be like, well, you murdered my son, I guess you can have my land. It's not going to work that way. That's a foolish, stupid way to think. Because if you murder the heir, not only do you lose the inheritance, you're cast out and rejected by the owner. In fact, that's how the parable ends today, with the owner coming in and casting out those wicked tenants and giving his land to someone else rejecting the leadership in Israel and giving them the responsibility of his people to others. This is what Jesus is telling the religious leaders today. You are about to reject me. I'm the son of the owner. It's interesting to note that in the parable, the, the, the landowner's son is described as the beloved son. It's the same language the father uses of Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son says the father. Listen to him. And the religious leaders say, no, we will not listen to him. We don't like what he has to say. He's calling us to repentance and threatening our way of life. So we reject him. And they cast him out. They kill him. And Jesus says, stone the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. And if you break yourself against me, if you reject me, then I am basically going to be the one who crushes you. For you see, you have no hope before the judgment of God when you reject the Son. 
You reject the Son, you reject the inheritance. You reject the Son, you reject the Father. And there is no hope for anyone before God apart from the Son, Jesus. It's an absurd thing, Jesus is telling believers, for him to be cast out. Even more absurd is the response of the leaders when they hear the parable. They discover that it's about them, and they decide we should kill the Son. They took no heed to Jesus' warning. And so I think that is the point of the parable for us today. You who would reject the Son, of Je- uh, the Son of God. If you are here and you are considering Christ someone to be removed from your life, someone to be rejected, just know that there is no hope before God apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. He is the only hope we have in life and in death. That's the point of the parable. But I don't want to end there because there's just one part of this parable that I can't seem to sort of let go of. There's just one more absurd thing that I I want to go back to that we mentioned a moment ago, and that's the attitude of the father and the son. It is strange, isn't it, that the father thinks the best move at this point is to send his son into the vineyard, and it is even more strange that the son goes willingly, that the son decides that this is a great plan. I will go and find those who will murder me. How does this work? This is absurd, and yet, This is exactly the picture of the gospel that we find in the parable today. That it is not the Father's will to reject those tenets. But time and time and time and time and time again, he's sending his words so they would repent and so they would believe the good news. He continues to give, and the son finally decides to go. Now, why does the son go? Why does the owner send the son? I think if we want to get this figured out, We need a little bit of guidance. So I'm going to appeal today to a wonderful hymn by uh, Martin Luther. Luther has a wonderful hymn entitled, Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice. We don't sing it a whole lot here because it's 14 verses, and you guys get upset when we do four verses. Uh, So we haven't sung this one yet, but one day. Um, At my funeral, this is one of the 14-verse hymns we're going to sing. One of, just to hear that. Uh, Anyhow, uh, dear Christians, one and all, rejoice. You have this wonderful conversation that takes place. Uh, Luther sort of recreates a conversation between the father and the son about the father deciding to send the son into the world and the son going willing. And this kind of explains why he does it. This is what uh, the, the song says. God said to his beloved son, it's time to have compassion. Then go, bright jewel of my crown, and bring to all salvation. From sin and sorrow set them free. Slay bitter death for them that they may live with you forever. The son obeyed his father's will and was born of virgin mother. In God's good pleasure to fulfill, he came to be my brother. His royal power disguised he bore, a servant's form like mine he wore. To lead the devil captive. And then Jesus speaks. Though he will shed my precious blood, me of my life bereaving, all this I suffer for your good. Be steadfast and believe. Life will from death the victory win. My innocence shall bear your sin. And you are blessed forever. This is why the Father sent his. And that is why the Son came willing. 
to obey his father's will. The triune God loves you. He made you to be his own, and he will not have sin have the last word over you. Yeah, it is absurd to think that God's own chosen people would kill his son. It is even shocking to realize that it is your sin that put Jesus on the cross, that he died on account of you. But it is amazing to realize that what we have done in our sin to this God, in evil, he has used for good. For the Father sent the Son in order to die, so that in his death he might become your Savior and your Lord. He would shed, says Luther, his precious blood, all to suffer for your good. It may sound strange and absurd that the crucified has become the cornerstone, your Lord and your God, that he died to forgive you. He has done it. You are forgiven on account of Christ. If that sounds absurd to you, I might correct you today and say that's not really absurd, but it's the most beautiful truth we ever hear. Amen. We pray. We thank you, Father. You have done something that seems awfully strange.